How many of you um, growing up uh, took road trips a lot and your family? Anybody? How many of you this year have been on a road trip that lasted at least five hours? At least five hours. Ten hours. Okay, I'm, it's time to, I, I'm going to glare off my somebody. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> ten hours. Some of you have been on some long, long road trips. It takes us basically to go back home every time we go a couple times a year if we drive uh, it's about a 12-hour drive, so I know there's long road trips. Growing up in my family, though, uh, we lived in Roanoke, Virginia, and uh, almost every summer for many, many years when I was a kid, and I have three younger sisters, we always jumped in our car, didn't jump in our car, we got in our car, packed ourselves in our car, all six of us, and took a road trip down, down the coast, down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. That was our normal thing. That was our destination. But there was a lot of stuff along the way that we often missed because the whole time we were on the road trip, what we were usually doing as kids... We were going, oh, I'm so happy to be packed into this car. No, we were going, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? I mean, we, how many times have you heard that, that phrase, are we there yet? Because it's all about the destination and never about the journey. I mean, there's so many cool things between Roanoke, Virginia and, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It's amazing how many things that are there once you slow down after about 10 years of doing this and started noticing some stuff along the way. Um, this morning we're talking about a road trip that um, the Israelites took. <laughs> it's kind of a lengthy road trip, kind of an out-of-the-way road trip that they took. Uh, last week, Chris shared with us, really, uh, the first part of, uh, as the people were beginning to go on the Exodus, meaning they had left uh, Egypt. And so last week, Chris talked basically about the first year of the road trip. Um, and then that first year of the road trip, some things happened, like they, they ended up going to a place called Mount Sinai, and uh, it's called Mount Horeb and some other places as well. Same place, just different names. Um, and and as they were there, uh, God gave them Ten Commandments. Uh, he built a tabernacle, which Chris talked about last week. But I want to continue that journey today and talk about what the lessons that we can learn from what the Israelites learned or didn't learn on their road trip along the, ru- the way. Um, once Israel was delivered out of Egypt, the plan was to go to the Promised Land. Uh, we know that from Scripture. And it says it was a land flowing with milk and honey, which was kind of a description of, a, of an abundant place they were going to go to. And the, there was a route that they, they could have gone from Egypt to Canaan uh, that Isaiah calls the way of the sea. It's called that in Isaiah 9-1, the way of the sea. We knew there was a, a well-traveled route that went along the Mediterranean Sea. And they could have followed that. That would have been a direct route. And we have a map here, uh, the next slide. This map here of where it is, right up here in this area up here. I love little pointers. I love technology, don't you? Okay. Right up in this area is where they were in Egypt, the land of Goshen up here in this area is where they started. And the, and where they were going to end up is somewhere over in here, okay? Over here, Karnas, Kardash Barnea right here and some places over here. So the most direct route would be here, the way of the sea along here over to here. That was about 175 miles, okay? I got on my uh, uh, Google Maps and was looking at what is 175 miles from Germantown Hills, and I found out that St. Louis is almost exactly 175 miles. If you were to go to a Cardinals game, go Cardinals, uh, uh, <laughs> just slide it in there. Okay, uh, I was not a Cardinals fan. I told you, I'll, I'll tell this story later. Anyway, um, but as you're going that way, if you're going to, to St. Louis, you know, there's a really cool thing on Google Maps, too. I never noticed until I was clicking on it the other day. There's actually three little icons you click on. It'll tell you how you can get there by uh, by car, by, like, bus or train or something. And there's, a, like, actually a hiking button on there. Have you ever noticed that? 
It is. Don't look at your, GP, your phones right now. Okay. Trust me, it's there. And so it told me that if you were going to go from here to St. Louis and you were going to hike the hiking button and you click on it, it tells you you could make it in about 57 hours. I'm going like, wow. Man, somebody's really trucking it. First of all, they're not sleeping. They're not eating. They're just kind of walking, walking. And they're walking fast for 57. Let's, let's be legitimate. You know, if, if you're going 20 miles a day, it would still take you only what? 175 miles, do your math, you know, eight, nine days, something like that. But remember the people of Israel were like two to three million people. So we're saying they're not going quite that fast. Okay. But still, what, a month on the outside? But they were going to go start up here. And they were supposed to go over here. But the problem is they ended up down here. Here's Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb down here. And so they took the first year to go from here down to here, hang out for a while. And that's where, where Chris was talking about last week, that whole journey down there. Once they finish in that location, what happens is uh, this, this direct location, instead of uh, going on, they decided to make this pit stop. And I began to ask myself, why did God take them on this journey down to here? And I think I start thinking about in Scripture and looking at it that one of the reasons may have been that for the last 400 years, they had been in bondage in Egypt. You know how long 400 years is? That is longer than we have been a nation in America. It's a long, we think, you know, that's, that's a long time. They had been in bondage. And so, so what it is, I, I'm thinking maybe God took them there to kind of give them a spiritual detox to, to kind of get them reacquainted with him again, to spend some time kind of chilling out with God and getting to know him in a real sense after they'd come out of this before they go to the promised land. So they end up, last week we kind of ended with them down here in this lake, lake, lake area down here, and what they're going to do eventually, if they're going to the promised land, would be to take this route up here, to go up here to this place called Car- Kardash Barnea, and that would be the south side of the promised land. Okay, that's where they're going. It's still... Not very far. Matter of fact, in Scripture, it tells us in Deuteronomy 1-2, it says this, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb or Mount Sinai to Carnish Barnea uh, by the Mount Seir Road. It takes 11 days. That was in Scripture. In those days, the average person who walked it by himself would take 11 days to get there. So it's not a really long trip. So when... when uh, uh, Moses was probably doing his trip planning. He'd pulled out his, you know, his map or whatever they used in that day. And was planning, he's going, oh, it's going to be, you know, oh, maybe a month, two months. We'll be up to the promised land. That's what he was thinking. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you go on trips, um, when you pl- do you plan, guys, do you plan trips? Do you look at your map? Do you just kind of get on the road and just go? I know what I do is I'll pull out my GPS and I'll plug in where I'm going and I look at it. And you know what I think every time I look at my GPS? Is a guy, I can beat that time. Because <laughs> that's talking about going the speed limit. Now, I'm not encouraging you to speed, okay? But the thing is, is that Oliver's going like, okay, that is the minimal time it's going to take me to go on this trip. So every time it says it's going to take me 11 hours and 28 minutes to go to Virginia, I'm going like, man, I can do it in 11 hours. I know that. That's the road time, not counting the stops. And so you know, we, we had that kind of mindset. I'm thinking Moses was probably thinking, oh, it's only going to take me maybe a month, two months, maybe outside to get all these people, all these two to three million people up to the promised land. But how long did it take them? 39 more years. 30. Now, what, what, what's the problem here? That's what we've been reading in chapter, uh, chapter 6 of, of the story. Uh, this, this part of Scripture in uh, in Numbers and Deuteronomy that talks about this period of time that's called the wandering. 
the wandering. Now, wandering, let me give you a definition of wandering. Wandering is living in the space between where I am and where I want to be. I want to use that as a working definition today of the word wandering. Wandering is living in the space between where I am and where I want to be. Uh, It's like the spaces we find ourselves in, spaces like between graduating and getting a real job. The space between dating and getting married. The space between deciding to start a family and having a child. The space between the diagnosis and the remission. The space between going into debt and getting out of debt. It's the space between being let go of a job and finding a new job. It's the space between saying goodbye to a loved one and being reunited with that loved one eventually in heaven. It's that space between where most of us live. We're on our way there. We're not there yet. It's the space between. Now, the question for us today that I find myself asking in the Scripture as I look at it is this. The question is, how do we, you, you want to live in the space between? How do you live in the space between? In this space between where you are and where you're going. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's the thing of the lesson, I think, more than anything else that we learn from Scripture today is we have a couple of options about how we live in the space between. And as the people of Israel wandered for 39 more years, or approximately, from that place, which shouldn't have only taken them a couple of months to get there, maybe, and it takes them 39 more years to get there, a total of 40 years to wander in a desert, I began to understand something. This space in between is where God does his best work in our lives. Uh, so, because we are so concerned with the destination that we uh, we very rarely think about the journey. And God seems to be very much focused upon this whole thing of what are you doing in the space between? How are you dealing with that that part of your life where you are? Because we're so much in a hurry. And I want us to do a little. I thought it'd be fun this morning to do a little test. This is you don't have to do this out loud. Please do not. You'll embarrass yourselves. Um, it's a little true-false test to see how much in a hurry you really are than I really am. Okay, so I'm going to give you eight questions this morning. And in your head, you just go true, false. Okay, true or false. Okay, got it? This is real easy. Interactive this morning. Okay, first question. This is about hurry. I have cut through a gas station to avoid stopping at a red light. True or false? Some of you are grinning. I know you did it. Okay, okay. You, you're, you're such a hurry, you can't just stop at a red light. You go, let's go through here, you know? Um, I frequently, number two, I frequently look at my watch or clock, or I found this now on the cell phone to check the time. Don't look at it. I mean, I have a giant watch on the, the, the wall back there. You don't even know, a giant clock. I can see it. I ignore it totally. But, you know, but the issue is how many of you constantly are, you know, worrying about the time, worrying about the time. Okay. Um, number three, people who talk slowly irritate me got a problem with that true false number four i become annoyed when the person in front of me at the checkout line chooses to pay by writing the check i mean what century do we live in folks writing checks what is that but i mean have you ever found yourself irritated because somebody pulls out usually an elderly person pulls out a checkbook and it begins to write a check instead of swiping that card? Maybe you're too much of a hurry. Uh, number five, I find myself finishing other person's sentences for them. Man, this is one. I've got to make myself quit doing this. You know, because I know what you're going to say. 
And you know what I'm going to say. So you just go ahead and finish the sentence, right? But we're in a hurry. Let's get it, get it out. Come on. Number six, when I am delayed and running late, I am irrationally upset. You can answer for your spouse on this one. Okay, because nobody, nobody thinks they're irrational in any way themselves. Okay, number seven, I have difficulty finding time for things like a doctor's appointment. I am so busy. If that's true, you're probably too much of in a hurry. Number eight, I feel compelled to leave church early to beat the crowd out of the lot. This is Great Oaks, folks. This is Germantown Hills. We're not talking about downtown Chicago, okay? I mean, how long does it take you to get out of the lot here? I don't know. I'm the last one out usually, so I don't know. But, I mean, three minutes? Okay. But some of you do. I mean, I, I do exit greeting every week on purpose. You know why? So I can see who leaves early. No, I don't do that. No, no, no. So I can, so I can get to know people as they go out the door. I don't get to know them well, but know by faces and stuff like that. And, and, you know, let me tell you, I was so proud of you guys last week. I want to tell you, I got to say this. I just got to say this. If you were here last week and we had this really funky setup, anytime Chris pre- preaches, it's going to be different. Okay. In a good way, Chris, in a good way. Not every week, but every time you do it. But last week was really fitting. It was really good. Talking about the tabernacle. If you were here, how many of you were here last week? Most of you. Did you like it last week? Pretty cool. I thought it was really cool. It was really intimate. But you know the cool thing about it? If you sit on this side, you can see people on that side. And this side, you can see people on this side. Only one person got to go to the bathroom the whole service last week. You know why? I called accountability. So I know you can hold it. Okay. <clears throat> Not saying anything. Just deal with it. Okay. Uh, I had to say that. Okay. It was a perfect time. Um, so the thing is, is that if you answered a lot of those things, you're probably too much of a hurry. I mean, I had to answer yes to a lot of those things. And we've gotten to this, this thing. We're always in a hurry. But you know that God doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Have you noticed that so far in our study? Think about Abraham a few weeks ago. God promises him to be the father of a nation. And what is How long does it take? Like 30 minutes? No. It takes decades for that to happen. For God's promises to come true. Uh, then we talked about Joseph. Remember Joseph had this dream when he was a, t- a teenager that he was going to be a, uh, his brothers were going to bow down to him. And how long did it take? It came true because we find out that that was actually a vision from God. But how long did that take to happen? Years and years and years and years for that to happen. And then we talked about Moses. I mean, Moses, he, he leaves, leaves Egypt and he, and he has, and God works on him. And how long does it take for him to work on him to get him ready to give him the burning bush experience? Forty years. Forty. Does God seem to be in a hurry? I would say no. And the reason I believe that God is not in a hurry is because of this. God is more concerned about who you are becoming than where you're going. God is more concerned about who you and I are becoming than where we're going. And so we see the reality here in the wilderness once again that God is not in a hurry. I mean, people are going like, are we there yet? And it, they keep asking. I wonder how many times they asked that for 39 years. But God is concerned in, in raising them up and growing them up and getting them to the place to where they can be ready to go into the promised land instead of just getting them there because he's concerned about what they're becoming. So for all of us, I think in a sense, the question becomes less about 
where we are going and more about who we are becoming. The Israelites' time of wandering, though, as I look at it, as they wandered in the desert, this is another main thing. One of the most dominant themes of the wandering is Israel's constant what? Complaining. Their constant whining. They whined all the time. And that's what sometimes we tend to do in the space between. I mean, when we ask the question, are we there yet? We're whining. When we think that God's not working as fast as we wish he would work, we're whining. And it's interesting. And whining, in a sense, can be a sign of unbelief that I just don't trust God and where he's taking me. It can be that sense. I love in uh, Numbers uh, chapter 11, the book of Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 and 6. And I want to read it out of the message translation because I love the way it says it here. It says the riffraff, and the NIV translation calls them the rabble, uh, the people on the periphery. It says the riffraff among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. And this is how they whine. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it for free. To say nothing of the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Sounds like a pretty good meal. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. You can hear them whining right now, right? And you would think by hearing that, that back in Egypt, you know, it was like a buffet or something, you know? And it starts with those on the outskirts and it spreads to those to the whole camp. We've seen this, you've seen this work in your own life. It starts with one person in the family complaining. A couple of neighbors, a few co-workers, two or three people in the church. And then soon it catches on and what happens is it spreads like an infection. This complaining, this whining. And it becomes toxic to the home and to the work environment and into our friendships and to churches and organizations. It almost creates a cloud that covers up the sun. And complainers are like sponges that suck the joy out of life. That's why I almost tell you, I'll just be honest with you, you know, on Facebook, I have a Facebook page, I never put anything on it. I'm just a creeper. I just kind of look at you and never do anything. That's what my son told me. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that's what, what I was. But anyway, I'm just, I'm just, you know, seeing what people are doing. When I find somebody constantly, all they do on Facebook is complain. You know what I do to them? I defriend them. Because I don't want to hang around people that are negative. So if I defriend you, kind of check out yourself, Okay. <laughs> No, don't do that. Uh, but ask yourself the question. Look at what you post on there. Look at what, or is it more about, you know, good things? Is it more about encouragement? Is it more about, you know, just reporting things that are happening? Or is it about complaining? Studies have shown how detrimental that this is to the community or to the family. I love a University of Denver study that was done years ago. And it was done about how to predict... Um, Success in marriage in the first 10 years. And you know one of the main predictors, they say, that to predict how long the marriage is going to last has to do with the number of times that you complain and whine in a marriage? It, it proved this, that one of the most reliable factors to predict the longevity of a marriage is the number of negative comments or whining and complaining per 100 comments. So for every 100 comments, they say if you have five or less of those, 5% or less of the comments are negative, whining, complaining, you have a good chance of lasting a long time in your marriage. But if, you, if it's 10 or more, you may not last very long because it poisons the relationship. It's proved itself thousands of times. And we look in Scripture 
And we see that God, as we look at this journey and wondering and not, and, and uh, in the Bible here that we've read this past week, God constantly is doing what he's providing. He provides manna. He provides quail. He provides water from a rock. But they never see what God is provi- providing. They, they whine. We read in Deuteronomy, uh, we read in Deuteronomy that he miraculously causes the sandals on their feet and the clothes that they are wearing to not wear out. I mean, they have indestructible clothes. How cool is that? But what do they do? They whine. They complain. And the complaining is contagious. I mean, it even starts almost right after, uh, I don't know, I think you covered this last week, Chris, but 45 days after they left the promised land, I mean, left Egypt to go toward the promised land, they're just 45 days out in Exodus chapter 16, we read these words. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, 45 days into the trip. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. How long is our memory? What have they been in Egypt? Were they at a fondue party? That's what it sounds like. No, no, no. They've been slaves. They've been slaves in Egypt. Yeah, they got food because they had to work for it hard. But that is what people do who complain. They see every situation is better than the one they're currently in. But while whining and complaining are things of this journey, this, this wandering for them, God's guidance, his grace, his provision is equally so. He provides for them again and again and again, but even God finally has enough. I love this in Numbers first, chapter 11. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament because it just shows the side of God has a sense of humor. Numbers chapter 11, verse 18 through 20, it says this. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation. This is as they've been whining about not having anything to eat, any, any meat. Okay? Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you will eat meat, you will eat meat tomorrow. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. I don't know if that's how God says it, but that's how I read it, okay? Then it lets this. You will eat it not just for one day or two days or five days or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. I mean, God has a sense of humor. He does. I mean, he's going, guys, oh, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. See, the problem is that God gives them a sense, some perspective. Oftentimes, this is the what we what our complaining needs, some perspective. We lose sight of how blessed we are, about how he has provided. I love what John Ortberg has to say in one of his books. He says, what would change our lives more than anything else is if we could just look at the situations that seem unfair and say these four words. It could be worse. It could, let's practice that. Let's all say it together. It could be worse. Okay? It could be worse. It could be worse. You know, we tend to say, I deserve better. It's not fair. But perspective is what we need. It could be worse. That means that when you go home this afternoon to your house, you walk in your door of your apartment, your house, and you open up the door, and you you might be tempted to think, you know, if I just had a bigger house, a better house, I would be happier. But instead of doing that, you're going to have perspective because you've been here this morning. And what are you going to say? You're going to say, it could be worse. It could be worse. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, next time you step out of the shower and you make the mistake of turning sideways and looking in the mirror. (laughs) 
You might be tempted to say, if I only had her body or his metabolism. But you're going to smile and say, it could be worse. Because it could be. Could be. Tomorrow morning when you roll over in bed and look at your spouse. I'm not going to say it. (laughs) You get the point, right? Could be worse. Sometimes we just need a little perspective because we get lost in the way we think of things and what everybody else around us. I was a couple of years ago. I'm not... I'm just going to say this. A couple of years ago, I was at a middle school basketball game. I'm not going to say it's guys or girls, okay? Because it gets wide open. Okay, because about what I'm about to say. But this parent at this middle school basketball game, and I knew the parent, because um, I know Germantown Hills is pretty small, so it doesn't, you know, I pretty much know everybody. Um, this parent at the middle school basketball game, middle school now, uh, their child um, was, was playing and, and missed a layup, okay? They missed a layup. And I, and this parent just went berserk. I mean, they were like, what's wrong with you? You know, and then as the game progressed, the, the parents started yelling at the refs the whole game. I mean, just yelling and screaming at the refs. I mean, you know, you should call it, you know, just going crazy. And I'd been just, it was one of those days where it was a nice, beautiful day outside. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm thinking, chill out, man. I mean, it's a beautiful day. Your child is healthy and strong. You're one of the 8% of the people in the world who can drive your car and attend a game like this. Quit whining. Take a deep breath and say thank you to God. We need to have some perspective on what's important and what's not important in life. And we've all been there, and we need that perspective in our life. You know, I, recently, I was just the other day, I was talking to, to one of the guys, Dan Haney, that goes to our church here, who's gone on a lot of mission trips. And he was he's going to write this, this paper, this book, or something on the whole thing of the perspective of, of what, what he's learned through these experiences of, of God changing him through mission trips. And I've heard people before, recently, Rob Brown, who goes to church here, went to China uh, in, on a mission trip. And I went to Africa in February. And, and the same thing everybody says comes back and we say this, it was life-changing. That means what we say. But the issue is, I've started to ask myself, what is it life, what's, the, what's, changing, what's life-changing about it? I think the thing is, it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective on life. I heard it from our students who went on the road trip last year. You know, they come back and they're going like, you know. And the problem is, is that it doesn't take long for life to kind of suck the perspective right back out of us. And we just need to be re-inoculated. Bill Hybels has said this. I mean, he has the opportunity every year to travel to third world countries. And he says, every year I need to go there and to be re-inoculated. I think that one of the best things you can do is to go to a place that's third world or somewhere and to be getting some perspective on life. Because we don't live in the real world here. I mean, only you're truly, only 8% of the world can own a car and do the things that we do every day. And we just take it for granted. And then we look at the story in Scripture of the Israelites and we think, you know, I would not have complained about that. I mean, God was giving them free food, you know, quail and manna and rock, water out of rocks. They didn't have to work for it. didn't have to do anything. Yeah, we would complain about it because, I mean, how many of us complain if we have to eat leftovers? I mean, shame on us for thinking that, you know, 
we rarely think about the things we should be thankful for. And what we see with the Israelites is that a whole generation basically is lost in the wilderness because they never figure this out. That God has, they don't, they focus on just the things they don't have instead of the things they do have. And so this is the deal this day. And I want to kind of close with this and wrap the sermon up today. The basic thing is this, is that as I see in this story, it's this, whining is the opposite of worship. Whining. I never thought about it this way until I was reading this. But, you know, the opposite of what they were... See, worship is giving God glory for who He is and what He has done. That's what worship is. Whining is ignoring who He is and overlooking what He has done. In Numbers 14, 11, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I mean, God was constantly, over those 39 years, there for them. And all they thought about was the things they, they didn't have. Here's this perspective that complainers have, or whiners have. Everything that God asks of me is too much. And everything that God has done for me is not enough. That's the perspective that complainers and whiners have. And that's the opposite of worship, of trust. See, God had dramatically saved his people from hundreds of years of slavery. He'd shown his faithfulness and power by parting the Red Sea. And when they were hungry, he sent manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, he brought water from a rock. And over and over, we read that the people complained they whined. And so the question we end up with is this. How do you want to live in the space between? Space between where you are now and where you're going to be eventually. Because see, God's concerned about the space. He wants us to ask, are you going to be a whiner? Or are you going to be a worshiper? And we make that choice. I mean, yeah, all of us have stuff that happens to us. But so often we forget we, we're overshadowed by all this. It's overshadowed because we don't even think about the good things that God has done in our life in spite of that. See, when we were living in the space between, we can find ourselves doing the same thing. God was so generous that he gave his only son. But what do we complain about? Our decline in our retirement fund. God became a man and walked among us and showed us how to live. But we complain about the wrinkles in our hair li- and our, uh, around our eyes and our receding hairline. Jesus died on a cross. Um, taking the punishment that you and I deserved on himself and offering us salvation. But we complain about, you know, our job is not as fulfilling as we wish it would be. God is holding up the walls of the Red Sea. But we're looking down and concerned about the mud between our toes. We were slaves to sin, but God rescued us. He delivered us. What is there to whine about? See, in a sense, all of us right now are living in the space between. We're all wandering all of us are living in the space between this life and, and the next. The question is, how will you live life in the space between? Will you whine and complain or will you worship? That's the question. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.